Today, we talk with Joseph Pierce and Liza Black about the vast number of questions that are opened up when people pretend to be Native when in fact they are not. These cases take on a special significance when such false identifications allow these people access to privilege and positions of authority. When these falsehoods are found out, they place scholars and activists who have allied themselves with these people in extremely difficult positions and unfortunately make institutions like colleges and universities the final arbiters of how just to be served. Finally, these cases put even more pressure on Native peoples to imagine and practice inventing identities that are both rooted and at the same time open to a broader set of possibilities. Centering specifically on the Andrea Smith case, who for decades assumed an invented Cherokee identity, we speak with these two Cherokee scholars, Joseph Pierce and Liza Black, about the multiple levels of epistemic violence involved in such cases, but also Indigenous decolonial epistemologies that resist such settler appropriations and exploitation. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the Creative Process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Thank you both for being on the show. This is such a complex and important issue that we want to make sure that we have enough time to approach from any number of different angles. But I guess in some ways, although we don't want to be talking exclusively about the Andrea Smith case, it seems to provide a case history of someone claiming Native identity and examples of nearly every kind of damage that can be done. So can we start with you giving us a brief account of this case and telling us what kinds of issues it brings forward for you both? My name is Joseph Pierce. I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation, and I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I should recognize that There have been a lot of people working on this before I started engaging with it. It's important to note that in particular, Indigenous feminists and women scholars have been doing the majority of the critiquing. But from my perspective, Andrea Smith is someone who made a career on exploiting the pain of Indigenous women. Her first book, Conquest, was highly acclaimed, and she elicited most of, if not all of those interviews by claiming that she was an Indigenous woman herself. People have been questioning her identity for a long time, for if not 20, close to that many years. And it has been firmly established that she is not only not a citizen of any of the three federally recognized Cherokee tribes, but that she has no Cherokee ancestry at all. And so this is a person who emerged on the scene when she wasn't awarded tenure at Michigan's and got a lot of support from people claiming to be a marginalized woman of color. People rallied around her. And in the subsequent years, it's been a lot of disappointment and disillusion with the way that she has consistently marginalized actual Cherokee people, discredited other people, all in order to her false claims to Cherokee ancestry. And over the past five or so years, more and more people have come to the realization that we have to really not simply call this out, but work in a collective way towards bringing to account for these years of lies and and deception. There was a major story in the New York Times Magazine about this that really put it on the national stage, but people in Indian country and and across Native American and Indigenous studies have been dealing with this for a long time. 
there were some operations at UC Riverside. There were calls for her to resign. There were some internal processes that they had at Riverside. And eventually she apparently decided to retire. And all of that information, the separation agreement has been made publicly available. That's a long-winded summary, but one that I think is important to contextualize, not just that this has been going on for a very long time, but she has consistently shifted her positioning with regard to academic fields, with regard to identity claims in ways that have directly and uh, specifically harmed Indigenous women in academia and outside of it. Lisa, your thoughts, but also on the agreement around Andrea Smith's resignation and whether it in many ways perpetuates the violence of anti-Indigenous appropriation at universities. The agreement didn't adjudicate on the claims, and it still allows her to articulate her own quote-unquote opinion about her Indigenous ancestry, rendering uh, indigeneity something that can be an opinion held by white people for them to appropriate. So can you talk about the case in the context of what this um, resignation agreement says about the dynamics of universities and sustaining these types of um, exploitative and expropriative relationships. Thank you so much for the question. And I too am a citizen of Cherokee Nation like Joseph, and it's really good to be here. Thank you for inviting us and thank you for addressing this really painful issue for us and a powerful one that often gets overlooked. Even in those who are attentive to issues of social justice can fall to the bottom, but not for us. So I really appreciate you giving the space for us to think about this and to share this with your listeners. So as Joseph stated, the end result of Andrea's case was that she voluntarily resigned, as my understanding, from University of California, Riverside. She was asked to resign. If she hadn't, she would have been removed in a more forceful way. But she chose to resign, and that allowed her to keep her title. It allowed her to keep her retirement funds, things like that. The only negative for her was that she's not an active full professor. She had been an active full professor teaching with a salary and whatnot. You said it in your question that the university did not require that she make any statement about her identity. It did not require that she correct the record on her identity. And as you suggested, she continues actually to claim that she is a Cherokee woman. She has never renounced that statement. She has never admitted to the copious amounts of research done on her, often by indigenous feminists, but also by media outlets. She has never acknowledged it. She has never addressed it. She just stands by her lie that she is Cherokee and that she always will be. I believe that's the phrase she uses, that she always will be. And so, yes, this is a way in which the university creates this problem, they're at the heart of this problem. They're manufacturing this problem and they're perpetuating this problem. That wasn't really in your question, but I hope that we can address that at some point in our time together, that the university is a pretendian factory. No, I, I would like us to continue this exactly, Liza, because I was thinking that especially these days, the importance of education is so critical and precisely universities are under attack for critical race studies, et cetera, et cetera. And so on the one hand, when they are the site, really critical knowledge getting out there. And then when they abrogate that privilege to contaminate the system, in other words, people like Andrea Smith, what's the incentive for her do, to do this, right? It's in the university. It's her notoriety. It gives her the credential, which is over and above if she had spoken as an individual. So there's this reward structure that she milked to the hilt 
And then it protects her ultimately. She's betrayed every ethical point there could be. So yes, let's unpack this a little bit more. The politics of education, the corruption of institutions that are out to protect themselves from litigation and the cost that that presents. I, I think that within the context of the recent Supreme Court case on affirmative action and the tenor of arguments around race, and I want to also connect this back to the Supreme Court ruling on the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was, again, about the inability of a settler institution to distinguish between race as it has been invented and articulated and political citizenship as it has been articulated over and over again by indigenous nations. So this is something that Andrea Smith exploited and which universities, particularly in the United States, don't seem to have an answer for. The part that really is insidious about it is by relying on the structuring of Native American identity, Smith is actually not only appropriating that identity, but that the experience that is assumed to come along with it. And that experience becomes part of your academic profile as well. It becomes part of your epistemology and the way that informs your research and your teaching and your service and your engagement with community. Even if the university doesn't say that it has the ability to, to discern these things, it also is participating in that same assumption that an indigenous person brings with them a certain experience that is valuable to the institution. So Andrea Smith is again taking advantage of this slippage and in doing so is presuming to have the experience of indigeneity while at the same time suppressing other people's ability to flourish as indigenous people. This is the insidious part of it, really. It's, I wanted to say demoralizing, but at this point I go from a sad to rage, to like righteous indignation, to who cares, fuck it, like to, I don't know. There's like a range of emotions that happen with these things. Joseph, you also pointed out that Andrea Smith's appropriation of indigenous experiences allowed her to then go and appropriate and gain access to the experiences of other Indigenous women of sexual violence for the advancement of her own career. A recurring theme throughout this podcast has been the violence that's often intrinsic in academic knowledge production. So Liza, speaking of the violence at the university, can you speak about how these two forms of both in terms of identity production, as well as then in terms of appropriative relationships with communities that are made subjects of study, how these two forms of violence um, at the university are connected. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that Joseph started off by pointing to these Indigenous feminists who were both harmed by Smith, but also who were often subjects of Smith. And I want to say, on the record, I was one of the people who testified against Andrea Smith at UC Riverside on behalf of UC Riverside. There was, I think, 13 of us. And some of those people went public. Some of those people didn't. And so this is my first time going public saying I was one of the people who was a letter writer in the campaign to remove Andrea Smith from faculty at UC Riverside. And your question is really on point because that was a focus of my letter. In my conversations with the people who were involved in the campaign at UC Riverside, they really wanted me to, instead of focusing on proving that she's not Cherokee, they wanted me to focus on her ethical violations as a researcher. It was difficult to focus on that because I felt she had done so much harm to the field, right? And, and there, there's so many ways in which she's done harm. It's just bullet point after bullet point. So it was really difficult for me to focus on that in my letter, but that is what I focused on 
And I did actually reach out to some of the women she writes about in this really successful book she wrote, Conquest. I reached out to some of those Cherokee women and, and one of those Cherokee women did go on the record as well. And so it's incredible to me coming full circle to this moment of Joseph and I here on this podcast with you. I reached out to one of those women who did go on the record and she didn't want to do this. I think that speaks to the level of harm that's done to community members who have been in crisis or are currently in crisis when these researchers reach out to them. And that is the level of trust that's violated between Andrea Smith and myself or Andrea Smith and Joseph or Andrea Smith and the field. It's just qualitatively different than that between her and a Cherokee woman who has undergone violence, who is trusting her with her story, trusting her with her address, her phone number, trusting her with her relations, right? Introducing her to her relations, her friends, and saying, this is my friend, Andrea Smith. She's a Cherokee woman, right? It's difficult to calculate the emotional damage that does and the community damage that that does. Those communities are still reeling from this. Trust is the hardest thing to recreate after trauma. And this was trauma upon trauma. She reached out to traumatized women and then she traumatized them. It's incredible. And all of it done within academia, as part of academia, all of it, all of this knowledge sifted through Duke University Press. I was thinking about precisely those of us who work in these areas in the academy are automatically already a besieged minority and that we take solace in our solidarity with each other. And Smith exploits this and the idea that there was all this collateral damage on down the line. People that might have cited her or collaborated with her, all these people then became forced into position of either denouncing or tacitly going along and therefore turning a blind eye to it. Joseph has written a lot about this. The idea of trying to explore expansive notions of kinship, that we don't want to be locked into these very static and rigid categories. And yet, in this way, people like Smith exploit that flexibility, they exploit that openness, that need to not submit to the settler logics. And they take that opening as a way to say, aren't you being hypocritical by then closing down this exploration? There's one aspect of this, David, that you alluded to and that Liza, I think, also is highlighting. But I think it's important to articulate clearly that in addition to an ethical breach, this is epistemic violence. The stories that people are telling constitute the form of understanding one's position, one's relations, which is itself our way of existing in the world. So when someone like Smith takes those stories and presents them as if she were a Cherokee person, that's doing harm to the epistemological integrity of our people. It's so fundamental, the types of damage that these practices inflicts on our communities is not just individual. It is also historical, collective, and epistemological. And, and I think that brings us to another related question, which is the, that the citational practices that this then relates to, also that the knowledge upon which the field is structured depends on, for example, this book, Conquest, that has the approval of Duke University Press, that then is the foundation for other knowledge. But that foundation, we need to recognize, is really corrupt by this deceit and these fraudulent identity claims and these unethical research practices. And the question in academia, trying to find solidarity, 
I think that also is, is really important because I don't think it, it, it is coincidental that Smith shift from Native American and Indigenous studies to uh, a kind of Afro-pessimist critique of the very thing that she's been being accused of not having, right? So the shift to questioning the fundamentals of a kind of scarecrow argument of Indigenous sovereignty that's at the core of some of that work. It's also inflected by these challenges to her own identity, right? To me, this seems obvious, but I think sometimes you have to spell it out, right? You're being besieged and you move to this field that's actively critiquing the very thing that you are being accused of. And it's okay, we're just gonna, never mind. I think that you really put your finger on something because these kind of moves and evasions give you the belief that these sort of people would latch on to any other kind of discourse that would be to their advantage. So it's like they're trashing and burning as they go through academia. And yet institutions, for whatever reason, we can explore the legal aspects and also the reputational aspects, are giving sanctuary to precisely the people that are so destructive to supposedly what the university stands for. Could you situate this particular case and the perverse dynamics of the university that it speaks to within these broader subtler structures of epistemicide, as Joseph said, also sociocide, genocide. Scholars of settler colonialism point out settler colonialism often operates through tactics and strategies that on the face would seem to be oppositional or in contradiction to each other, but are really united by an underlying logic of anti-Indigenous elimination. And so at the same time as we have white people appropriating and valorizing some forms of Indigenous identity for themselves, engaging in acts of self-Indigenization, we have at the very same time the settler state attempting to erase peoples, to quote-unquote kill the Indian and the child in forms that continue through, for example, foster child and quote-unquote child welfare programs. What do these two dynamics, the simultaneous erasure of Indigenous peoples' own identity and settler appropriations and self-indigenization that we also see in other settler colonial contexts. For example, Israel engaged in eliminative violence against Palestinians while at the same time indigenizing themselves by claiming to have invented indigenous foods like uh, hummus and, and falafel. What do these types of dynamics of settler colonialism tell us not only about the violence of settler colonialism, but also its anxieties and instabilities uh, as a structure and a process that continually needs to reproduce itself? I made the decision this semester to start my class with decolonization is not a metaphor by Tuck and Yang. And my students were just floundering. I mean, they were just drowning. They were like, they hate us. They hate white people. I don't understand this. This is so complicated. Oh, they were just fighting for their lives, right? They were like, you should have assigned this at the end. This was so mean. But I, it was so nice to read it again and to think it through and to think about that section from decolonization is not a metaphor on what I like to call white people who think they're allies, but they're not, right? And one of those categories is the pretendian. And earlier I said that academia serves as a factory for pretendians. And so if I can just explain to your audience what I mean by that, what I mean by that is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which we see in all sorts of spheres. Microsoft has DEI initiatives, but we know the university does, right? And this is connected to affirmative action and it tends to erase an indigenous people. There's no recognition that we are not a racial group, that we are a political group. 
And so this sort of sort of rubber hits the road right there for the undergraduate admission. That's the first chapter in the story of a pretendian. That's the first time that a lot of pretendians lay claim to this identity of being native. And the universities have no problem with it whatsoever. It's indigenous people who fight against that settler colonial initiative to make this about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and not about indigeneity or indigenous rights. And so that student marks indigenous, they're accepted as an indigenous person, and the university pats itself on the back for admitting yet another indigenous person. And they very happily add up those numbers that go into all sorts of reports to say, this is how many indigenous students we have at the moment. The, the numbers are rising, et cetera, et cetera. And then many of those students never attend any indigenous events, but some do, some do. Some will come to the support center for native students. And some will really take on ownership of this idea that they are native when in fact they're not. And they actually know they're not. But let's say we have a person who's gifted intellectually and they can get their heads around these stories and they can get their heads around epistemic violence and they become friends with people in, in the native community. That's the beginning of their story. And that's the way in which academia produces these people. And academia has a profit motive in producing these people. And then it puts the native kids who don't know that this person is not a native, it puts them in a very difficult position where they're having to judge whether or not you are. And may maybe they believe you, maybe they don't, but that can create division within the group. And I'm sorry if I'm making this sort of too plain and not intellectual enough, but I've just, I've lived through it. I've lived through it. And it's incredibly painful. And I wish your, your listeners could see all of our affect. There's a lot of affect happening. There's a lot of feelings happening. So I just really wanted to spell that out, that the university is a settler colonial institution. It has a vested interest in presenting numbers on their spreadsheets that show that they do have indigenous students and they do not care at all who those students are or whether they are actually indigenous. And that does cause harm. Don't worry, we can post a picture with all our rage faces for the episode. I have have also yeah. been like smiley, smiley raging. There's two things that Liza is making me think of. One is that I'm currently in the process of dealing with a lot of this because we're starting a, a brand new initiative at Native American and Indigenous Studies at Stony Brook that was announced on Monday, so yesterday. And I've been talking with administrators and I've been talking with lots of departments and community members and the university doesn't have a mechanism other than self-identification for indigenous students, for, for the demographics of, of indigenous students and faculty at the same time. So the question of how do you account for indigenous experience is not contemplated within the framework of DE&I precisely because there's no incentive to actually engage with Indigenous peoples as political units because that would then require more than simply an additive logic of we've got some more Indians. It, it would require navigating the world in a different way. It would require ep epistemological and ontological change. It would require land back, right? It, it, it would require something quite different. And so I think that's part of the system, the systemic problem there too, is that the university and some are worse than this than others. 
But I think the, the sort of standard is, is a kind of self-identification that really is at odds with the basic tenets of indigenous political structures. And the, the second thing is that Jody Bird and I were just having a conversation recently and the identity slippages that happen and the double and triple marginalization of certain individuals is, I think, also one of the ways that people are encouraged to continue with their storying of their false indigeneity. And we're going to be on the record very soon about this, but another Cherokee person or not Cherokee person is Kuo Lee Driscoll, who wrote a number of important articles and a book called Asegi Stories. And Kuo Lee is not enrolled, has not been able to verify any of their claims to Cherokee ancestry. And the field of queer indigenous studies is built in large part on their participation in a number of important edited volumes and in their monograph that is still being published to this day with their biography listed as being a Cherokee person. And so if you buy that book today, it says Cherokee two-spirit person, and it's not true. And yet we, we have its positioning of being two-spirit or being queer or being trans and indigenous. And so people are combining these intersecting Meanwhile, those of us who actually are those things, our forms of being and knowledge making are now predicated on this other person's definition of what queerness and transness and indigeneity mean. And it's actually undermining the possibilities that we have to think as our own fully embodied selves, right? It, it undermines our capacities for being able to articulate our own positions. That's another part of this, right? That the university incentivizes the creation of this knowledge, and it doesn't care. It doesn't mm -hmm. care, you know, who makes that knowledge. You publish, you get tenure, you keep going, blah, 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 blah. And nobody's, but wait, did you, are you actually Cherokee? There's no incentive for that. And it just keeps going. And all of a sudden, the field is warped because many of these foundational figures don't have the lived experience that they claim to have. That doesn't mean they don't have a lived experience. That's the thing. Just tell your own lived experience. Don't tell someone else's lived experience. That's the other thing that's so maddening about this is the doublespeak of universities who will then put the burden on you all to be the recipients of the accusation of hampering other people's academic freedom or freedom of speech. And you are being gatekeepers and you're being rigid and policing all the things that were not, but it the consequence of calling out these kinds of egregious epistemological forms of damage is to be portrayed as stifling inquiry. And by the same notion, jeopardizing your own really wonderful work, both of your work on things like restoring and, and trying to clear out a space of liberation that is not for profit or for self-aggrandizement, but simply for a kind of pleasurable and content life, a way of being in the world, whereas these other people are capitalizing on that flexibility. Can you maybe tell us, because I think it's important to get out there to the audience, the things that have hurt you the most, let's say, I don't, I, we talked about feelings before, which I don't want to either aggrandize or cheapen, but what, how does this feel viscerally to you as you try to do the really important work you're doing? How is it taking its toll on you? And what kinds of maneuvers do you find yourself having to take on? I love that question. And if I can be even more personal with you all, I haven't said this to this, but I've known Andy for a long time. 
So I was actually at University of Michigan when Andy got hired there. And that, I believe, was her first job. And that's the institution that denied her tenure. And so I was there at her job talk. I don't think I was on the search committee. I may have been. <laughs> and let me tell you, she was a cruel and vicious person. She was unkind to the indigenous people on campus. And her attitude was that she was more, I'm more Indian than you. I'm the legit one in the room. You're nobody. And that, did, that alone did a lot of damage, right? Because there is an incredible amount of emotional damage amongst indigenous people. People are suffering from the effects of adoption or the effects of adoption upon their parents or boarding school upon their parents. There is all sorts of ways in which many indigenous people, including academics, don't feel legit. They don't feel enough. They don't feel like they fit in. They worry about these things. And so that was another sort of way that she played on people. And she really, the irony that I'm a citizen, that I'm enrolled in Cherokee Nation and I am a citizen, but she made me, this is incredible. She made me, Andrea Smith, who now has been removed from University of California Riverside for not being Cherokee, made me feel like I wasn't and made me feel awkward about claiming that identity. I hate to admit that, but that is how manipulative she was back then, right? Back then at her first job. So that's one of one of the painful things. And I've completely reversed my position, obviously. And I'm astonished that she was able to do that to me and others. And that's their story to tell. But I was not the only one at Michigan that she, who she had this effect upon. There's so much. It's also very painful to me. And I don't I could literally cry talking about this. But what's very painful to me is I feel that there's now not an interest in Cherokee people. And I feel like people don't know about Cherokees and that we really are a nation and that we really do have a culture. And I just feel like people are never going to know any of that because of her. She's created this disdain almost, I, I sense, amongst people. When you say you're Cherokee now and they're like, are you? That's because of her. That's because of her. And that's very painful for people who don't feel like their story is the right story. But their story often isn't the right story because of the trauma of colonization. So I don't know if I've answered your question. There's so there's so much pain with it. But for me, the one good thing is I'm like, no one's ever going to make me feel like that again. Right. Thank you for sharing that, Lisa. I think that there's a lot of us who also feel that kind of cheapening of our cultures, of our specifically in this case, Cherokee culture, precisely by people like Smith, Elizabeth Warren, like all the pretendians. And I'll just say from my perspective that I've written about this. When my father was adopted out of Cherokee community as a newborn, he never met his mother until he was like in his 50s. And we finally went through the process of opening the sealed adoption records and found out that his mother was still alive. And we were able to meet her, thankfully, mir miraculously. And it took me a long time to recognize that was not a unique story. I thought for so long that I was like the only one who's who was like disconnected. And then people like Andrea Smith come along and are taking the pain of that rupture, the pain of that disconnection, the, the loss of language, the loss of kinship, the loss of land and stealing it. And I'm not defined by that pain, but it's there and it's part of my experience. That is part of my experience as a Cherokee person. 
and people like Smith who come along and construct these false images of indigeneity, of Cherokee-ness, so that those of us who have this Cherokee experience or that one or the next one or all the other ones, right? There's no singular one. That's the thing is she makes it, she has made it seem like there's only one experience of being Cherokee when in fact there are so many varieties because of colonialism, precisely because of colonialism and allotment and adoption and the termination eras and the relocation programs and all of these things that have ruptured our communities. And she preyed on that rupture. She preyed on our inability to articulate in a stereotypical way how we are indigenous. And what that does is it makes the painful memory or the feeling of insecurity and inadequacy the only thing that seems viable in that scenario. And it limits your ability to narrate yourself as a fully formed, joyous Indigenous person. And like Liza, I came around to the realization that story, that one story is will not define me, that my story is enough, that other people's Cherokee story is enough, that we have community and culture and our stories together create who we are, and that people like Andrea Smith don't get to, to have a say. They don't get to have a say about what it, what it means. Thank you so much, both Liza and Joseph. That's incredibly powerful. And if I could just squeeze in one more question, Aziza, because I know it's your turn, but the, I was so moved by both of your work in exactly exploring, struggling, testing, experimenting out this idea of restory or creating exactly what Joseph ended with. And now we know even more how difficult it is when you're weighed upon by these other forces, even on top of colonialism. Could you talk a little bit about your current work? I would, I would like to give you some space to talk about what you're doing in exactly what Joseph said is, you don't get to tell this story. This is what, I, this is what I'm attempting to do. Could you give us just whatever amount of detail or, that you like about your, your, what you're doing in terms of these stories? so much for that generous question. I, I appreciate it. It's really good to give us a space to talk about our work. My current work is almost a direct response to Andrea's book, Conquest. So I'm writing a book on missing and murdered Indigenous women. And that's really what Andrea's book, that that's really is the book that brought her fame, was her book, Conquest. And that was the book that was used in all the women's studies courses when they wanted to include Indigenous women. And I hope that my book can be the replacement for that. People are looking for a replacement and this could be it. So the book's called How to Get Away with Murder. It's a transnational history, missing and murdered Indigenous women. It's due in June 2024. So I have, I'm not too far from the first finish line. And it's six micro histories in Canada, the U.S. and Mexico. It starts in Cherokee Nation in the late 19th century. So my first chapter is on a Cherokee woman. And I'm talking about those Cherokee people that people need to know. And I'm talking about Cherokee speakers and the violence that was unleashed by settlers in that first chapter. So yeah, each chapter is a micro history, some on the plains. There's a two-spirit person, Fred Martinez, uh, who was the youngest LGBTQ plus person to be murdered in 2001. There's an indigenous Mexican woman. I think it's going to be very teachable. People could take sort of one chapter if they were doing a class on Mexico, they could just take the Mexico chapter. If somebody was doing something on the plains, they could just take one of the plains chapters. So I think it's going to be very teachable. And I hope that it gives something back to these communities and to these families who have lost their loved ones. We need that 
Thank you for the, for doing that. It's hard. A lot of my work throughout my life has been about kinship, having it, not having it, wanting it, trying to make it, trying to understand it. And my current book project, which is hopefully going to be under contract soon, is called Speculative Relations, Indigenous Worlding and Repair. And so it's a gesture of repair. How do we repair these ruptures of kinship? And it's also fairly autobiographical. I tell the story of my family story, my, my dad and everything. But I also look at historical moments in which indigenous peoples are captured, for example, by ethnographic photographs or ethnographic paintings. And how can we look at some of those images with an eye for restoring, speculating, as I'll theorize, on ways of relating to those images that enlivens them, that brings them into the fold of care that is part of what I'm envisioning as a kind of reparative kinship method. It's more visual studies than literary and cultural studies, but it's it's a little bit of a of an experiment and I'm I'm looking forward to getting it done. So perhaps we could end then by speaking about how both of your work speaks to ideas of kinship and community and political beyond uh, belonging, far exceeding those limited parameters that are on display in cases like those of Andrea Smith, where when demonstrating the settler colonial state's remarkable capacity for inversion and projection and manipulation, it's indigenous people who in cases like this time and time again, I know in this country that currently calls itself Canada too, every time a pretending is exposed, it's indigenous people who are accused of quote unquote, violent identity policing or fetishizing blood quantum. And so can you speak about how both of your work speaks to notions of kinship and, and belonging that exist far beyond the capacities of the settler state whose imagination of identity is simply restricted to, at best, uh, multicultural identities as a form of property that's disconnected from indigenous sovereign ways, thinking about what it means to be people, to be loving, to be caring for each other. I would just say that if you think one way of thinking about decolonization, I think, along with Tuck and Yang, is to center our imaginative potential to create and maintain the relations that uphold our worlds. Our worlding mechanisms are about land and are derived from land, and our landedness is central to that. But it is also through the extension of ourselves toward other beings, human and more than human, celestial and aqueous, um, that allow us to stain life and living in good relations. If I really had to boil down what I have been trying to do and, and what I think a lot of us have been trying to do, it's to be in good relations. And that is what people like Smith don't understand and have never understood, is that you are not being a good relative by stealing our stories. You're not being a good relative by creating this fictional version of indigeneity. And you're not being a good relative by tricking Indigenous women into telling their stories of violence. Well said, said. Yeah, you can never say too much about being a good relative, right? And I'm constantly reminded of that when I encounter these families and these communities who are searching for their loved ones and trying to raise awareness for their loved ones. You really see that, that kinship that's the glue that's sustaining these families. 
And you see how the indigenous community comes out just instantly, instantly when someone goes missing and they immediately just boots on the ground. They'll go anywhere. They'll do anything, <laughs> any weather looking for folks and or protesting and or getting food so that people can eat while they're protesting and eat while they're searching. It's just an incredible demonstration of kinship, of love, of care, of community. And it really flies in the face of what they're up against, which is the carceral state, which refuses to care, refuses to see these women as part of them, as part of the world we share, refuses to acknowledge really their humanity. And so I'm just constantly inspired by that, touched by that. And I hope that my book can show people that these, that these are the heroes, that these people out there looking through the prairie, looking in ravines, looking in gullies, those are the heroes, not the police. And also not people like Andrea Smith, who are represented as being indispensable to the field, even while Indigenous women are treated as disposable. I was just at in, in Winnipeg at the Search the Landfill camp where people have been forced to camp out for months to get police to search for women who are buried in the landfill. And they've actually been forced to hold signs saying what no one should have, ever have to say, which is that women are not garbage. And so I think that this is also a very powerful intervention against the politics of colonial disposability intrinsically connected to colonial genocide. So thank you, both of you. I said at the beginning of the session that it's a complex topic, many facets to it, but somehow the both of you have touched upon all the important stuff in a powerful, poetic, and both inspiring, but also incredibly moving way. And so we really can't thank you enough for being on the show. And you have an open invitation to come back, especially when the books are out, but anytime the feeling strikes you, you're loved and welcomed. So thank you very much. Thank you Please. so much. Whatow. <laughs> Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's intentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview. 